0: I want to talk tonight some more about the hindrances because in this next week, we'll be speaking at different times about different ways of approaching these experiences and different ways of working with them. Now, Joseph covered in great detail the hindrance of restlessness and sloth and torpor the other night, so I'd like to go into some exploration of the other three. But first comes the question of what actually makes these forces of mind hindrances, what makes them a problem for us. On one level, of course, they're no different than anything else that arises in the mind. They share the same qualities of impermanence and insubstantiality. But Somehow in their nature, in the way that they function in the mind, they tend to draw us into a kind of ignorance or forgetting so that we become neglectful, we overlook states of peace or happiness because we get wrapped up, we get involved in these other feelings. So much of our practice is really a question of perspective. It's not that we struggle, ideally, to change what our experience is, but much more it's a question of first establishing and then renewing or maintaining the right perspective on our experiences. And that is, is the vastness of freedom, is to be able to have the very same experience happening, but to be relating to it so completely differently with a very different perspective. It's very opening There's great release, or relief, in being able to do that. Someone once told me the story of the late Tibetan Lama Trungpa Rinpoche taking a very large, white piece of paper once in a room full of people, and just in the center of this piece of paper, he drew a kind of loose, V-shaped object. He asked the people in the room, what is this a picture of? And every person responded by saying, oh, that's a bird. It's a picture of a bird. And Trungpa Rinpoche said, no, it's a picture of the sky with a bird flying through it. This is something of what I mean by perspective. We get very caught up. We get very narrow. We get very tight around certain experiences. Whereas our freedom can be can be found by that stepping back, by taking in the big picture, seeing things in context, being able to let go, not to overlook that sky. The hindrances as factors of mind all tend to bring tunnel vision, to bring contraction, to bring difficulty when we get involved in them. And so it is a tremendous challenge to learn how to deal with them skillfully so that we're not caught up and we're also not judging. We're not involved in condemning them or fearing them. But being able to understand how they function and that we need not get involved in them. Hindrances, in general, these factors of mind will lead us towards wrong thinking or wrong action. But that doesn't mean that they're bad. It's not that they're evil states and that we must chastise ourselves and condemn ourselves thoroughly for the experience of them, but rather to understand that we do not need to get involved with them. That they are in some ways just habits of mind and that we can have a very different perspective on them I think in all of this what's important is that we remember to stay very simple with things. It's said somewhere that every time the Buddha himself spoke, he spoke so simply even a seven-year-old could understand him. And perhaps as a consequence of this, it's also taught that he had quite a few fully enlightened seven-year-old disciples. (laughs) You know, we can make things very complicated and very very intricate and elaborate, but really it's very simple. It's this question of relationship, of perspective, and to see that no matter what our experience is in terms of content, in terms of pleasantness or unpleasantness or neutrality in a single moment, we have this opportunity to be relating to it either based on our conditioning, driven by our conditioning, or with understanding and with wisdom, right now. It was a time many years ago, many, many years ago, when I went to Burma for the first time to practice. This was back in the days when Burma, as a country, was only granting seven-day visas. So what many of us would do would be, we would start out in India, go to Burma for seven days and practice. And at the end of that time, we'd have to go on to Thailand. And then once in Thailand, we would reapply for visas to go back into Burma for seven days and then back to India. This was just after a time when Burma was only open for 24 hours at a time, so it was an extraordinary opportunity to go back to the country where our own teachers had studied and practiced. I went and did that, and very soon after I got there, I got very, very sick. I had a terrible cough, and I couldn't even lie down at night because I was coughing so much, and I was miserable. I was, I was so unhappy because all I could think about was how difficult it was to get there, and what an unusual opportunity it was, and how conditions had finally, finally come together for me to be able to be there and to be experiencing it. And I was angry and bitter, and I expressed some of my, my sorrows to the, the head teacher there, it was a woman. And she looked at me and she said, well, this is good practice for when you die. And I thought, oh. <laughs> And it struck me that, like, you know, so many of us, so many of the people I was with in India, I of course had a very strong desire to have a very conscious and, and peaceful death. And somehow it hadn't in my mind included the possibility of coughing and being uncomfortable, you know, and, and being feeling bad feelings in my body that I somehow kind of had this image of myself lying in bed, surrounded by all of my friends, reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead to me, and, you know, and everything felt very fine. And it was this amazing moment when she said that to me, because I realized how, once again, I had certain concepts about what my practice was and should be, what spiritual practice should look like, and how it was only by breaking free of that that I could understand the role of spirituality in all of life and in death. That is either about all of our experience and being able to come to terms with that and deal with it, hold it in the right perspective and use it skillfully, or it's much too limited. So again, with these hindrances, you know, they're not very pleasant states, they can be very difficult in a lot of ways, but there's a great power in learning how to work with them. All of these states that come and go in our experience are completely outside of our control. Just as one can't say successfully, you know, well, I've woken up this morning and I looked in the mirror and I weighed all of the pros and cons and I decided not to grow old. It doesn't matter. You know, the body has its own nature. It will do what it does. In just that same way, we cannot control the content of our minds. You cannot walk in here and say successfully, well, I've suffered enough. You know, the whole rest of the retreat is going to be just fantastic feelings all of the time. Unfortunately, it doesn't work. All of these different factors and forces and habits of mind, they come when conditions are right for them to come. There's nothing we can control about that. And so there's nothing we should be blaming ourselves about in terms of what arises in our experience. But the critical question is how are we relating to it? What is happening? What perspective are we holding it in? These are the hindrances. In the classical description, the first of these is the force of desire, or attachment, or greed, or grasping. It's when the mind sticks to something and it doesn't want to let go. In some ways, it's almost like a state of enchantment. If you think about a time in your life, perhaps, when You've been very infatuated with another person, only to turn around three months later or four months later or six months later and look at that person and say, what was that about? There's that kind of projection, of expectation. It's desire. It's not that that feeling is bad or wrong, but we have to look honestly and critically at how it functions when we get lost in it. What happens when we get lost in it? It really does bring a tremendous amount of suffering to us. It tends to give us tunnel vision, as though the greed or the grasping or the desire is defining what we think we need in order to be happy. And That is a very interesting question. Perhaps it's the fundamental question. What do we need in order to be happy? Do we need anything in order to be happy? And if so, what does that mean about the happiness? When I think about the first time I ever went to India to practice, mostly amidst all of the other feelings I have about that time, I think about how grateful I am that I didn't appear in India with a long list of things I felt I needed in order to be happy, like hot water, or water, <laughs> you know, or toilets, or all these different things, because I could never, ever have stayed. The conditions were very difficult in a lot of ways, but the learning was tremendous. And I think about what would have happened if I had shown up with this long list. I just could never have been there. And what a tremendous loss that would have been. What do I really need in order to be happy? When we're filled with strong desire or greed or attachment, it's like the mind fixes on an object or on a person and makes that hope very solid and very real. It's the force of desire that produces the actual suffering because of the narrowing function that it has. We fix on something. I have a friend who many years ago, for the first time ever, invested in the stock market and it happened to be that year, I can't remember the exact year, but whatever year it was when the stock market went way down. And he said that he went through this very interesting period where Many times a day he would read a newspaper and many more times a day he'd watch the news on television or listen to it on the radio. And he realized that he was reading everything and hearing everything in terms of what the effect might be on the stock market and whether he could make his money back. So he'd hear about war, and he'd hear about starvation and famine and all of these things, and all he could think of was, gee, I wonder if that's going to make my stock go up. Until he got to the point where he realized that kind of fixation was so limiting for him that he really was a person and is a person of very good values and a lot of feeling of connection and caring for others. But all of that was getting sacrificed in the hope of getting his money back. So he made the decision just to sell the stock and be happy, which he was and is. It's the force of desire that produces that narrowing effect. And what's interesting is that it's not the object, that we can have very great desire for very small objects. And intensive retreats of this length are are wonderful laboratories improving this. You know, you can walk in the door with the thought, you know, if only I had a new car, then my life would be perfect. And even by this point in the retreat, it could be, you know, if only I had a cookie, (laughs) my life would be ideal. But somehow that force, that intensity of desire is just as strong for a much smaller object. this functions. this attachment functions as a problem because we begin to believe that people or things will give us what in fact they can never give us. Just by the very nature of life and how it changes. And yet we yearn, we hope so much and we hold on as tightly as we can. My very favorite example of this is the Parisian perfume which is now a couple of years old which is called samsara. Those of you who know Buddhist terminology know that samsara is the word for this round of rebirth and constant change and incessant restlessness and wandering and a lot of suffering. So it's kind of a funny name for a perfume. When it came out, all of my friends got very excited and they sent me just massive numbers of clippings with the ads. This is what the ad says. It says samsara. A sense of serenity, a new and rare fragrance where sandalwood and jasmine rain, rich and lingering, subtle yet persistent, to touch the innermost senses. And then it says, Samsara, a timeless fulfillment. Now you think about that, you know, is this perfume going to be a timeless fulfillment? Probably not. But we hope for that so much in so many things. A lot of what we want, a lot of what we desire, is just like this perfume. It's somebody else's construct of reality. It's someone else's promise. This will make you finally perfectly happy. This happiness will never change. It will never be broken. It will never be marred. That's very unlikely. If that could happen for $75 for a quarter of an ounce of perfume, that would be very nice. But it never does because everything is constantly changing and we feel feel so dissatisfied with that because we have invested so much hope and so much projection into an object or into a person or into a thing. It changes and we feel so disappointed our true happiness, our deepest happiness, isn't based on having fulfillment of an object of desire. Almost by definition, when we are filled with greed or desire, we are on the one hand focusing on what we don't yet have, thinking how much we need it, so that we're not not feeling a lot of gratitude or a lot of contentment, but rather that yearning, that hunger, or we are focusing on what we do have with a kind of fearful tension about whether we can keep it, whether we can hold on to it and keep it from changing. In my very early practice, I experienced a lot of difficulty and a lot of pain. But after some time, things began to switch a lot. And many times when I would sit, I would feel wonderful feelings. I would feel nice sensations in the body, I would feel pleasant and serene mind states, and always would come the thought, the imagination of myself in two years or five years or ten years, back home in America, walking down the streets of New York in exactly that mind state. And I would just see myself kind of floating down the streets, wearing my white sari and having this this beautiful, beatific smile on my face, because I was sure it was never, ever going to change. And what happened? 20 minutes later, or half an hour later, or 40 minutes later, my back would start hurting, my knees would start hurting, I would be bored, I would be sleepy, I would be restless. And every time that happened, I would accuse myself. I would say, you blew it. (laughs) what did you do wrong to have that beautiful state go away as though I should have been able to control it? It was my fault that it changed. But really it wasn't. Things change. That is the very nature of our experience. There is no thing we can experience that will not change. And so to have the idea that I should be able to hold on to it could only bring me suffering. It could only enhance ignorance. The state of attachment often leads to resentment, because when we have that much hope fixed on an object, we begin to see other people or other experiences as competition. We see them as somehow obstructing our final happiness. Because our sense of happiness is so limited, it's defined as being contained in that object, we naturally have to push away other forces so that we can somehow stay close. But really our happiness is limitless. It's not contained in an experience, in an object, in a person. If it were so, it would make it quite fragile and very dependent, very conditional which it's not. That level of happiness, which we often experience, is really like the experience of pleasure. And that's wonderful, but it's very temporary. There's a far deeper and more pervasive joy that we can know that isn't even a feeling. It's more about that state of awareness. It's more about residing in a place of peace, no matter what is going on. When the Buddha talked about desire, he talked about it as being the root of suffering because of two aspects. One is the aspect of seeking, which is endless. We have a nice experience and it changes and we have to find another one. And that goes away and we have to find another one. And so it was very annoying, really, that all of this stuff changes and we're always moving. We're always restless in a way, looking for the next experience. That's the first aspect. And the next is the aspect or the quality of guarding. It's that feeling that when we have something happening that feels good, we have to hold on to it. We have to make it stay because we don't know what kind of desolation might happen if it goes. We're so invested in it. And so that guarding, that holding on, is also a source of suffering. There's a lot of fear in that. Desire is considered the near enemy of metta or love because in a state of attachment we are really operating within the form of exchange. That is the very mind that says, I will love you as long as you provide these things for me. It's a very limited kind of affection or closeness. And Buddha described metta in this way. He said, develop a mind so filled with love that it resembles space in a room which cannot be painted. It means that if there's somebody standing here throwing paint around, there's nowhere for it to be held, there's nowhere for it to take root, and so the, the space is not hurt no matter what color, what amount of the pain. That is the, the force or the function of metta. It's very different than, I will love you as long as the following things happen every day. This is attachment or grasping or desire the different ways that it functions. The next of the hindrances is the opposite of that, and is also considered the far enemy of metta, and that is aversion in all of its different forms. It's anger and fear, impatience, dislike, all of which are states of striking out against what's happening, wanting to separate from the truth of the moment somehow defining what is happening right now as being unbearable. Saying, I cannot tolerate this to be the truth of things. I cannot bear for this to be how things are. It has all of these different manifestations. In many ways, as a force to be reckoned with in the mind, it's much easier to work with than desire. Because desire is very smooth. It's that state of enchantment where when we are getting what we want, while we have it, things are pretty mellow. Whereas anger or aversion, from the moment it arises, is a state of pain. Clearly, it's very rough. It's very difficult. There isn't any kind of smoothness at all, and so there is a great opportunity out of compassion for ourselves in feeling that pain to learn to let go of it as a force. When we say to let go of it, it doesn't mean to repress it or deny it or try to pretend that it's not there. If something for us, for any of us, is defined as being unacceptable to feel or acknowledge, then we have a problem because we're going to try to cut it off. To be able to feel genuinely what our experience is, to be able to acknowledge it, to be able to recognize it, is very important. Or else we will just engage in a whole range of methods of self-deception to try to pretend that those things aren't there. So we're not talking about having fear of, of certain states like anger or condemning them but really to be able to acknowledge them, to feel them, not to have them rule us, not to be driven by them, because they, in turn, will cause tremendous suffering for us. In the Buddhist psychology, when they talk about anger, it's likened to a forest fire, which burns up its own support. So as a motivating factor, it's something that tends to be very self-destructive. It's not something that can be sustained, that can carry us very long because it burns up its own support. It's so painful. And like a forest fire, it can range pretty wide and free so that we might end up in a place very far from where we'd like to be, just carried by the momentum of that force. Anger also, or aversion, has a tremendous quality of isolation. When something is happening and we are pulling back, we are demanding to be separate from it, when we're striking out against it, we feel a great deal of loneliness and isolation, and that can be really overcoming. The Buddha put it this way, he said, anger with its poison source and fevered climax is murderously sweet." There is a definite power and juice in anger and that's very positive. It's a way of not staying on the surface of things, not just accepting what is given to us, but cutting through, seeing things in a much deeper way. It's a way of setting boundaries. All of this is the positive side, but the negative side or the difficult side far outweighs that as it burns up its own support, as it, as it gives forth its destructive force. What we see as we go inside is that, in fact there are a tremendous number of scenarios of revenge that are going on sometimes it's funny you know sitting up here and looking out because you all look so very peaceful a lot of the time and it just looks like you can't imagine that anybody you know looking so serene and peaceful is having any kind of angry thought you know but if you could imagine the possibility of our thoughts, our internal process somehow being connected to a loudspeaker and being blasted through this room, it would be extraordinary to hear what's going on. But the question always for us is, well, who is the one that's suffering from that? Now, maybe people have hurt us terribly, and they've gone on and they're living their lives or they've died who is the one that's sitting here burning with it? Who is the one that is caught in that, who's suffering from that? It's we ourselves. So again, out of great compassion for ourselves, we try to let go to work with it skillfully. It was a time when I was doing a retreat and my mind became absolutely obsessed with someone that I knew, who was actually a friend of mine. But what I was obsessing on were all of his faults. And every sitting, hour after hour, in this very building, I would be thinking about him and all of his faults. I'd think about the things he said that I thought were unskillful and the things he'd done that I thought were unskillful, just day after day. And finally, I said to myself, well, if the clases or the defilements are literally translated as torments of the mind. Why am I being tormented by his defilements? Let him be tormented by his defilements. I have my own defilements to be tormented (laughs) by. Why am I doing this? Just to let go, to unhook. What do we do? See, What do we get angry at? What do we define as unbearable? I can remember very early in my practice, back when things were were so difficult, I went up to my teacher once, who was sitting in the front of the room, and I kind of gathered together all of my courage, and I looked him in the eye, and I said... remarkable, looking back at it, because he was certainly a very compassionate person, and I asked him that question almost as though... I thought there really were an easier way and he was holding out on us <laughs> somehow, that he, he was enjoying the fact that I, at any rate, was suffering so much and I was struggling so much. But it was ludicrous because he was just that. He was a very compassionate person. I'm sure if there were an easier way he knew about, he would have taught it right away. But I just looked at him in that kind of accusatory fashion and he just laughed <laughs> What was actually going on within me was that I had a lot of interpretations and judgments about my painful experience, even my physical pain. I thought, this means I'm a bad yogi. If I were a good yogi, I wouldn't have physical pain. My energy flow would be so nice and free that there would be no contraction, there would be no blockage anywhere in my body. <coughs> or if I were a good yogi, that there would only be blissful feeling going on, or no one else is moving. Why am I always moving? He's unreasonable you know, to think that I could sit here without moving. I had a lot of conclusions about myself, and about what all of this meant, and really it didn't mean anything. You know, It was the experience of the moment, and I suffered terribly, not from the physical pain, but from all of those attendant conclusions and interpretations. I'm always the first one to move. Why am I moving? No one else is moving. I have to do that. Round and round again. It was terrible suffering, but the suffering was from the aversion. The suffering was not really from the physical pain. And so we look at all that to begin to understand the nature of our experience, really we get very full of aversion and impatience and dislike. But why? What is it that we're reacting to? Just as I was responding so harshly to those interpretations, it's very helpful to look at that question. What is the source of this feeling? Sometimes we get very angry and upset and full of dislike when we feel that we are facing a set of limitations. But very often those limitations have no basis in solidity, in reality. They are fabrications. They're constructs of the mind. And rather than seeing through them, being able to let go of them, we get very angry because we feel so bound. So things are a little bit convoluted in that We have a friend who teaches meditation as stress reduction in a hospital not too far from here. One year, I went every week to attend his class. At some point in the course of the classes, he did this exercise. It was very interesting. It's a little hard to describe, but he took a blackboard, a very large blackboard, and just in the center of it, he drew three dots, and then three dots below that, and then three dots below that, just in that area in the middle. And he asked all of the people in the class, there were maybe 30 or 35 of us, to see if we could take a piece of chalk and connect all of those dots, only drawing straight lines, not repeating a line, and not taking the chalk away from the blackboard. So one by one, the 30 or 35 of us went up and went absolutely crazy trying to do that. We could not do that. And there was so much frustration and irritation in that room. Finally at the very end he went up and he took the piece of chalk and making these very wide sweeping movements that encompassed the whole border of the blackboard. He did it very easily. What each one of us, the 30 or so people, had done was we had taken that small area in the middle and assumed we could not go outside of it. And so we were in there, trying to make this work, and all it took was the big picture. And suddenly it worked. He never ever said or hinted in any way that we were confined to that tiny little area in the middle. Every single one of us made that assumption. And so we could, not, we could not do it, and it was very painful. It was funny that a couple of years ago, some people I know, including this friend and I, went to India for a conference in Dharamsala with the Dalai Lama. And in the course of this conference, my friend did a presentation, and he had a blackboard and he, he went up to the blackboard with his piece of chalk, and right in the center he drew his nine dots, three and three and three, mm-hmm. and he put down the chalk and he issued the challenge to the Dalai Lama, and within maybe thirty seconds the Dalai Lama looked at him and said, well do I have to stay in that little area in the middle or can I use the whole thing? You know, and we all just started laughing. And That sense of limitation was an assumption that we all brought to bear to that experience, but it's not inherent in the experience. And we have to look at that as well. You know, what are our expectations? Where are we defining our own limit? What is unbearable about this situation? Is it the conclusion we're drawing about ourselves from it? Is it that feeling of being trapped, whereas really there may be a much vaster expanse available to us? There's a lot that's very rich and very powerful in this kind of exploration. So That's desire and aversion. Joseph talked about sloth and torpor. He talked about restlessness, which are the third and the fourth of the hindrances. And the last of the hindrances is the factor of doubt. Doubt also functions to separate us from our experience. In some ways, we purposely, when filled with doubt, move away from the experience so that we can scrutinize it. We can compare it. We can compare ourselves. We can analyze what's going on and we can judge it. Doubt is really, in some way, comparing mind. You know, am I doing it correctly? Is it worth doing? Why would anybody do this? Wouldn't it be better to do that? And all of the different forms that doubt can take. It's the mind that can't settle anywhere because it's always seeking to compare and assess. When the mind is caught in doubt, it is very difficult to move forward with the practice because by definition we are pulled back from our experience. We're no longer doing it. There's a certain kind or a certain level of skepticism, of course, that's very healthy. It's quite important not to be gullible and just to believe things because somebody says they're true. I mean, How do we know they're true? It's crucial that our sense of truth is rooted in our own experience, in a very deep and complete experience of that. But doubt in its very nature it tends to keep us from being able to experience things for ourselves because we're no longer pursuing the process. We're pulled quite back from it in order to figure out something about it. We're judging. We're holding back. We're assessing. We're not actually allowing ourselves to have a deep experience because we have some model or some concept that is intruding, and it's very difficult to work through that. My strongest experience of this was also quite early in my practice, where my very first meditation teacher was a Burmese teacher who taught a form of Vipassana practice. Very soon after that I met a Tibetan teacher that I also liked a lot. I respected him a lot. and He was, of course, teaching Tibetan practice. I became completely torn about which of the two practices I should do. And so in effect I did neither of them. All I would do would sit would be to sit and think about which one I should do. And so I was constantly, incessantly thinking, you know, would it be better to do this or do that? Which is faster, which is better, you know, which is more right for me, and on it went. So I was really just thinking all of the time. I wasn't practicing at all. In some ways what was even worse was whenever I was with my Burmese teacher I would ask him about Tibetan practice, which he knew nothing about. Whenever I was with my Tibetan teacher, I would ask him about Burmese practice, which he knew nothing about. So not only was I learning nothing from my practice because I wasn't doing it, I was learning nothing from my teachers. <laughs> because instead of asking them about the things they knew something about, I was, I was purposely taking them to realms that they knew nothing about. It was like a quagmire. It was like being in quicksand with a very violent movement downward. What I had to do was just to cut it, was to say, do something. Do any practice. It doesn't matter what practice you do. Do it until you decide to do another one, but do it. And so I had to choose because the force of doubt was keeping me from doing anything." And in a way, it's so unfair to ourselves. If we are, as the Buddha described the truth of the practice, as a self witnessed truth, if we are aiming towards a personal and intimate understanding of the truth, we have to allow ourselves to go through the process, any process to stand apart from it and then to judge ourselves for not having what feels like a satisfying experience is so unfair. It's like we have to make that leap. We have to be able to undergo some process. And what's good about a retreat like this is that it's only for a certain period of time. This is not a lifetime surrender that's being asked. It is really to give yourself a break and to allow yourself to fully experience whatever there is to be experienced. And then just to see. To see what happens. There's a tremendous amount of doubt that is self-doubt. And everyone else can do it but me. Everybody here is sitting in complete bliss and perfect peace of mind. I'm the only one who's having thoughts even. You know, it happens all of the time. It was actually here in, I think it was 1979, when the Dalai Lama came here and gave a talk during the three month course. Somebody asked him this question, to paraphrase it, it was something like, You know, I feel like I am really worthless as a meditator. I don't even know that I deserve to be undertaking such a thing. You know, I can't imagine having any kind of success at it. And the Dalai Lama was wonderful, he said, you're wrong. You know, if you think like that, it's it's ignorance to be thinking like that. From the conceptualization of that tradition, they'd say that every being has Buddha nature. What he said was, you have a mind that can understand. In the Theravada tradition, we'd say something like every every being has that potential for enlightenment, for freedom. We cannot, or we need not, ignore that. That is our greatest resource, our greatest strength. That we all can do it, in effect. And the rest is like a story we tell ourselves. It's old habits. It's a legend. That we are not capable of doing this. In some ways it reminds me of legends surrounding the Buddha's enlightenment. When it said that on the eve of his enlightenment and he was sitting under the Bodhi tree, the Buddha then known as the Bodhisattva was confronted by Mara who is a legendary figure in Buddhist cosmology, kind of like a tempter. Mara was trying to dissuade the Bodhisattva from going on with his practice. And so he tried many different things. He tried hailstorms and mudstorms and rainstorms and trying to arouse fear in the Bodhisattva. And he just sat there, being unmoved or unshaken by it. And Mara would try to tempt him with lust and desire, and the same. He just sat there. And the very last challenge of Mara, in effect, was self-doubt. He said to the Buddha, the Bodhisattva, something like, What makes you think you even have the right to be sitting there with such an aspiration as the aspiration for total freedom or understanding? More or less saying to him, you know, Who do you think you are sitting there? as though you could do that, as though you could get free. and said that in response to Mara, his last challenge, the bodhisattva in that very famous mudra, which is depicted on so many images, like the one behind me, he reached down with one hand over his knee and he touched the earth. In doing that, he was calling upon the earth itself to bear witness to all of the many lifetimes in which he had cultivated the parmes, in which he had developed generosity and morality and truthfulness and energy and wisdom. It was the force of those parmes which were in effect giving him the right to be sitting there. And said that when he did that, he reached down over his knee and he touched the earth, the earth started shaking in response. Mara was defeated, went away, and Bodhisattva continued sitting through the night, and just at dawn with the morning star, he was enlightened. You think about just the force of the parmis that have brought us all here together. They're very real, and they're very strong. Something that we used to do with people who were on staff here through the early years of, of the centers we used to collect everybody's baby picture. We used to ask everybody to send a baby picture of themselves. And we have all these albums of all of us, you know, from the ages of like two months to five years. Sometimes I would just look at this and I would think, how did we all get here? You know, you look at these little kids and all these different places. and You think, well, how did it happen? You know, that somehow we all ended up here in this building, serving in some way. It's remarkable. You know, we all end up here somehow. All of us have in this time. It's really, it's like being carried by the force of, of these parmes. Having done that, we have the right to be here and we can rest with a lot of confidence in that aspiration that we really can do it. So these are the hindrances of desire and aversion and sleepiness and restlessness and doubt. We work as completely as we can with the force of mindfulness to be able to make all of these states the object of our meditation to be able to acknowledge them, to note them, to see that this is what's happening right now. We don't have to judge it and we don't have to analyze it. We simply have to be mindful of it. It's that perspective on things. If we are with one of these forces and we see the mind begin to create all of these structures, like I am a very bad yogi because I'm feeling anger, we let it go. Come back to the noting. This is what's happening right now. And we will see all of those structures being created at different times. we practice to let go of them. Return to the essential experience of what is happening. Being able to say it, to name it. This is greed. This is desire. This is sleepiness, restlessness, doubt, aversion, whatever it is. It's very simple, and because it's very simple, it eludes us constantly. We have to remind ourselves. we try that. Sometimes I can remember in my practice, in sitting, that I would measure progress by how long it would take before I would remember to note something. Like I would be sitting, and one of these hindrances would arise, and right away, I would freak out,, like, "Oh no. What am I going to do?" And I think of this, and I think of that, and I have you know, my five-year plans of you know I'll go into therapy and'll do this. And... <laughs> and at some point, there's this voice which comes on in the mind which says, "Why not note it?" <laughs> you know, Try being mindful of it. Pay attention to just this very thing. And it was amazing, because once I would remember, then there was a whole different relationship to what was going on. The perspective was vastly different. Sometimes it's a good long time before we remember. But that's really what I saw, was that if it started out being a tremendously long time before I'd remember, it would get to be a little shorter every day, and a little shorter until that became available to me much more quickly. This is the the foundation of our practice. There are many things that we do and these will all be talked about as well to try to bring our energy into balance, to support the mindfulness, to help us more easily be able to pay attention. But fundamentally, primarily, it is this question of paying attention, of stepping back. Not judging, not condemning, not analyzing, but simply noting, recognizing this is the experience of the moment. In that way, it becomes our meditation. It's not apart from that. If judging ourselves really brought us happiness or enlightenment, we all would have been there a long time ago. But it doesn't seem to work, however seductive it might be. And so we learn this tool. We learn stepping back, seeing clearly, seeing fully, without all of that embellishment of drawing conclusions and judging, to be with our experience just as it is. I want to close with a saying by Chuang Tzu, There was a person who was so displeased by the sight of their own shadow and so displeased with their own footsteps that they determined to get rid of both. The method they hit upon was to run away from them, so they got up and ran. But every time they put their foot down, there was another step, while their shadow kept up with them without the slightest difficulty. They attributed this failure to the fact that they were not running fast enough, so they ran faster and faster without stopping until they finally dropped dead. They failed to realize that if they merely stepped into the shade, their shadow would vanish. If they sat down and stayed still, there would be no more footsteps. Let's sit together for a few minutes.